Father, we thank you for your time, for creating a period in which we can peacefully assemble and worship and learn and share the so great salvation that we enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you would instruct us tonight and make that faith very real in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, I want to, uh, we want to go into some of the areas of sanctification, but before we do that, as kind of a drill um, and practice, uh, I want to go uh, back to the thing that we see again and again of, in the context of a problem. Um, if you have some scrap paper there for notes or something, or on the back side of one of the notes, um, if you will... Um, take a section of that, uh, a section of paper, and just visualize um, a situation in life um, where you're, you're at. A situation, anything. You can fill in with your own imagination. And just to heighten contrast and how we can solve that uh, problem. Gee, that's not nice. I guess that's the candle wax on the lens of the overhead projector. Hmm. Um, What we want to do is kind of visualize how a person who operates in the energy of the flesh as an unbeliever visualizes that problem. And then we want to turn around, take the same problem, and just apply the truths that we've learned from the creation of the fall, which are the basic ones underlying a lot of the stuff we're learning tonight. So if, if a person were to try to resolve this problem, first of all, obviously if it's a problem, somewhere embedded in that problem is uh, the, the issue of evil. Uh, there's frustration uh, there's some impediment to this person's will, to frustration, so forth. So, here the person is enveloped in this problem. Now, let's visualize the tools that that person has available to work with the problem. Um, as a human being, we know that... Um, A person has choice. Remember the attributes of man. Choice has a conscience. Uh, He has the capacity to love. He has a sense of time, limited time. He um, he has a certain amount of strength, knowledge. Um, He has some physical strength. He's limited in his location at any one time, so he has his own location to deal with. Uh, All the attributes of a person made in God's image. And, of course, we add to all those the detriment to each one that comes because we are fallen. So now we have all the attributes of man... Uh, marred and limited and distorted by the fact that we are fallen in that situation. 
Now, faced with that problem, let's think about, again, without relying on Scripture. Now, we are looking at the person playing a fleshy game. So, our analysis of the person isn't going to be their analysis of the person. You see, we're getting back to uh, presuppositions and so on. We're looking at them, but we're not looking at the situation through their eyes. We're looking at what they're doing in the situation through their own eyes. They are looking at it, and we're just describing. We're external observers to this process. So now the person has all, this by way of his, his tools. And this is the problem. And embedded in that is evil. And embedded in this is the effect of the fall on the person. So now we have all the, this together. And the person is saying, okay, now how can they reach out into the world and resolve the conditions out here that lead to that problem? Because obviously there are external forces that bring things into our lives. What control over those forces does a person have in and of themselves? They have some limited influences. They have some shieldings. What are some things that people normally do to shield themselves? Um, just, just tools that believer and unbeliever have. And the unbeliever, or the Christian operating like an unbeliever, has to cope with life with whatever he's got. What are some stratagems for dealing with that? The what? Okay. <laughs> One tool is to deny the problems there. Block off the problem. That lasts for about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Okay. Some form, right, some form of escapism. Now, if we look at this versions, of, there's various versions of this. There's physical. That takes advantage of this. There's mental escapism, Marsha was talking about. What other versions of escapism are there? Drugs. Drugs can be classed along with alcohol and a few of the other things as ways of uh, basically anesthetizing it. It's an escapism of sorts because what it does, your body... Uh, under the influence of these things, the nervous system just simply degrades. So it becomes an anesthesia. So that's another way. Um, nobody's mentioned, uh, all these so far mentioned tonight are escapisms, are ways of dealing with a problem, perhaps emphasizing passivity. What about an aggressive person? A person who, who is going to go out there and uh, kick the problem in the teeth. What tools do they have? Okay, they have, they have a set of legalistic works, we'll call it, and that can be acquisition of wealth or whatever it is to shield, use that as a shield. Um, uh, acquisition of power, social power, political power, business power, what have you. I think basically you can get the, the passive and the aggressive uh, approaches. 
Now, these passive and aggressive approaches mirror what we've talked about. One tends to be toward the licentious approach, and one tends toward the legalistic approach. They basically are the same way that paganism always deals. Paganism rocks eternally between these two modes. And you'll see it in your own life, you'll see it in your own flesh, because we're fallen, and God is redeeming us, and God is working our lives. But you'll, if you look at yourself, you'll see these tendencies. And you look at other people, you'll see them. You look at movements, whole groups of people, and you'll see that tendency. Um, one of the greatest tendencies of legalism, uh, probably, that existed for a time was the Roman Empire. Uh, the Romans uh, had a tremendous emphasis on law and order. They built aqueducts, they built roads every, all over Europe, and still there. Tremendous order against chaos. They despised peoples who were chaotic and disorganized. Romans loved organization. Communism was an example of this approach on a large scale. Build us a kingdom like Nimrod, because then we can contain this chaos problem. So the fear always is chaos. The problem is, after a while, people get tired of this approach. What happens after a while to a legalist, to a person who approaches these problems in an aggressive way trying to solve them? Does he ever solve them? Finally, you get worn out trying to solve them, and so you need some relief from that, so you go over here. So it's an eternal oscillation, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And at any given point, you're going one direction or the other. Now, the difference between that approach and the way once we, we want to work our way toward the Abrahamic covenants, where we're coming with this thing. But we've got to start with God of the covenant. Now, starting with a biblical approach, persons in the same situation... Same form of evil, same problem. Now, what in this same situation, what tools does a person have who goes to the Lord? Well, let's again, looking at God's character, we'll draw upside down open box. For one thing, let's introduce the attributes one by one and just see what difference it makes. If God isn't there... And the Christian faith is a bunch of baloney. There is nothing outside of you and me and all the human race that corresponds to anything like sovereignty. What you ultimately have out there in the universe is a, is a mystery of some sort, perhaps with something called fate, with a capital F. And whatever this mysterious fate is, it isn't a person. Because if you're going to say that fate is a personal will, now you're back to a personal God. We can't have that. I'm going to interfere with our lifestyle. So, if we're going to have, uh, from the Christian point of view, we're going to have God as sovereign, now we know that even though there's these forces that come out beyond those forces, is a screen that filters these things. Can anybody give an example from Scripture of a famous instance, a well-known passage. Uh, there's, probably, there's many of them, but I, I just have one in thinking. Maybe you can guess what I'm thinking about. Um, where Satan himself is chomping at the bit to be a force against someone. 
and he finds that his, his attack has to be filtered by the sovereignty of God. Job. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. There's a classic instance from Scripture that shows the screening process going on. Job at the time didn't know that because Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2 is no evidence that Job himself, while he was going through the trials, knew what had happened. That, that is put on by the author of the book, the Holy Spirit, to explain what was going on in Job's life. Job might have thought that, but Job wasn't intimate to those conversations that are, the Holy Spirit recorded in, in, Job, in Job chapter 1 and 2. Those are conversations that went on in heaven. And they're, far, they're secure. They're beyond the means of us. We don't have any receivers that are going to tune into those conversations. So the only reason we have those conversations recorded in the book is because the Holy Spirit wrote the book. But we have that sovereign character of God. And we know, therefore, that these forces are now under his control. Now that cuts the problem down a little bit, doesn't it? Now it's not a mystery. Now, let's, let's go to some other attribute because we want to deal with this mystery problem. Over here, man has his limited knowledge. Over here, God is omniscient. Now, put those two together, and how are we going to deal with the problem of... When we face these problems, we don't know why they're here, necessarily. We don't know all the details of why these things happen in our lives, even as Christians. Even reading the Bible, we don't know all the reasons why. So what's the difference then between the guy up there working just with the blue and the person who knows and is convinced in his heart, not just because he heard it in church, but because he's convinced in his heart that there's a personal sovereign will behind the universe and all things in it and that the person behind it is absolutely in total control of all things and all knowledge. Now, how does that help a person down here like us, and we're limited. We have limited knowledge, so he may know things that he's either not willing to share with us, or maybe he can't share with us. So you can say then, well, then what's the difference to us? So let's think about that for a minute. What difference does it make with just these two attributes, looking at these two attributes in this situation? Anybody phrase the difference it makes to the person who knows these things and yet still, in spite of this, doesn't know why this particular happened at this particular time to him in this particular situation. Yeah. Okay, we can have peace because we trust the character of our God. We don't have peace because we, he's sharing all of his thoughts with us. See the difference? It, we're not saying that God shares all of his thoughts with us. We're saying that he shares enough of his thoughts that he considers it sufficient. And we take it from there based on his faith, based on faith in his character. So that introduces another attribute that we are short on, and that is the fact that we have a God who is loving. So now with those three attributes, now we know a lot about the situation. And what are we doing? We're containing the problem. This is damage control, is what's going on here. And this is where Satan loves to get us off balance and get us out in the toolie someplace, forgetting everything we ever learned and reacting to life just like an unbeliever. 
And what God wants us to do is to look to Him. But we have to have content. We just can't say, ooh, I feel spiritual. That's not going to cut the mustard. Not when you're really in a state of shock over something that happens in life. How you feel isn't going to be anything. And if, you go, if you're the kind of person that goes on the basis of your feeling, then you're going to be doubly depressed. Because now you don't, you don't have the feeling. And so, because you think all the time that feeling is some sort of a, a, a parameter or a measure or a barometer of spirituality, what do you do when you don't feel well? So you can't base it on feelings. Feelings are nice, but they're accompaniments, not causes. So we have God as sovereign, God as love, God as omniscient. Now let's think of some more attributes that are the archetype behind these others. Okay, up here we have strength. Most problems seem so, so big to us because compared to our strength, they overwhelm us. So here we add another one. God is omnipotent. Therefore, he never gets tired. Never gets tired. Think of some, your own ways of phrasing these attributes. God is um, love. What does that mean? And see if you could develop that as a sentence and say it to yourself. I mean, what, and, and as, as the Lord works in your life, you'll see you'll change because maybe in the last three or four months he's shown this. And so to you, then, the attribute of love means that. And then maybe three years from now, the attribute of love will have a different kind of flavor to it. But see if you can phrase to yourself these attributes and what they mean. I try to state them in, in non-religious ways because if you get too religious about it, everybody tunes out. Um, so that's why when I deal with um, the attribute of omnipotence, I try to say something like, you know, God never gets tired because you don't read about that in theology books. Um, now we come to conscience because in this situation, he faces evil. And so now we have a God who is holy. And this introduces attention. Because the frustration with evil is that no matter what our, our uh, awareness of God is in a situation, even if we forget he exists, somehow he's always there to blame for the evil. Never notice that? You know, he's always to blame for the evil. Don't, not a peep of thanks. For, for weeks, but let there be one thing that's wrong, and it's his fault. So, let's deal with that, because that's embedded in every problem. The problem of evil. God is holy. So now, how are we going to balance that one? What do we do to bring those things under control in some sort of uh, scheme that makes them fit together more comfortably? What do we reason? First of all, when we deal with the problem is evil and our environment is evil, well, what else is evil? We haven't mentioned. We are. Who's fallen? <laughs> we are. So, before we get on a high horse and fussing about all the evil, we start with ourselves. We are members of the human race and the human race is fallen. So, evil world, evil people and evil powers. So now that puts the perspective in a, in a bigger, bigger light, and so it keeps us from getting fat-headed about how we think of ourselves and poor us. 
and we, we realize that this is all tied together, and it realizes that because God is holy, the, the, at the point of creation, you remember, there was no evil. So the evil is an add-on. And that's helpful, because if you're not a Christian, you don't believe that. If you're not a Christian and you don't operate according to the Scriptures, you can't say that. You have to say, finally, that evil is part and parcel of what's out there, along with the electrons and protons. You never can get away from evil on a non-biblical basis. There isn't any way to do it other than commit suicide, both of body and soul, like Oriental religions and New Age thinking does. So, these are just some tools... And what I want to do now is we want to turn in the notes to the sanctification. I want to review just one thing about these two circles that I keep talking about. If you'll turn on page 987 and 89, let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when we dealt with the Abrahamic covenant, let's think for a minute. What new things were happening in history when the Abrahamic Covenant was written? What had preceded the Abrahamic Covenant? The flood. What had happened between the time of Noah and the centuries that went along until Abraham? Five, about four or five hundred years. Okay, during this period of time, what was happening? Remember, we spent a lot of time last fall going through showed maps of Antarctica and we showed the decline of longevity and we said that basically the world civilization was built. Noah and his sons built what we call civilization. The math, the architecture, the technologies, the rudimentary forms of it were all there. I mean, who can look at the pyramids and not say a little geometry was required? So, all of the rudiments of our technology and our civilization were structured in this time period. What was happening, though, spiritually in the world at large? How do we explain the fact that if Noah and all of his sons and his daughters-in-law knew God, and they knew all of Genesis chapters 1 through 9, and you go out to the hot and hot tribe someplace, and they don't know anything, what has happened? What, that's the end result of a process that began with Noah. What was that process? A deterioration and collapse in the memory of originally the Word of God that all peoples knew. Everyone knew. There's no such thing as somebody who never heard. All peoples have heard. Now, what has happened is they have progressively sunk down into myth mythology and so on. Why is that? Why is it that you can take uh, tribes of men and let them exist for 500 years and they forget everything? What's wrong with them? They're fallen. So what we see in the deterioration of world culture is a result of the fallenness coming out. The technology doesn't fall quite so fast. What falls first is the spiritual side of civilization. After that, it deteriorates in a physical way. Okay, now at the Abrahamic covenant, God does something. What does new thing, you remember what new thing he does here? He calls one man out from the middle of the center of the most powerfully developed civilization of the time. He calls him, come on, get out of there. 
Then he says, I will give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. And at this point, God surprises history because he introduces something that was not predicted. He surprises all of history by pulling out and starting from that point forward a deliberate counterculture. From that point on, there's tension of an official sort. There's an identifiable group of people now separate from all the other culture that carry the Word of God. And now there's friction. And a friction that will last for centuries. Battles will be fought. People will die by the thousands, if not the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, over the issue raised by Abraham. His existence dooms the world in one sense. It blesses the world, it curses the world. How does the existence of Abraham bless the world? Because through Abraham, what happens? This is how the world will be saved from its deterioration. All the tribes are deteriorating. Who is it that's going to be the saving channel through which God speaks? Abraham. So that's the blessing. The cursing is that God basically has rejected the spiritual worth value of all cultures. And this raises what we call, back then in the fall, exclusivism. Our faith is an exclusivist faith, and this is the most offensive thing that you stand for that will irritate to no end unbelievers in your families and unbelievers in your neighborhood and in your workplace. It is terribly offensive. We are terribly offensive by virtue of our identity with an exclusivist faith that arrogantly proclaims it and only it is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, that's the way it sounds to them, arrogant. But it's, it's arrogant only because it says something about them. You see, when God calls Abraham out, what has he said about everybody else that he didn't call out? They're rejected. And so you have the interference of God into history in an official way. Now it's not just working in a person's life. Now it's an official disruption of civilization. So now out of this come these grand promises of God. And they're all of them, the land, the seed, and the blessing, are irritating. The land is irritating because it says, who is the final owner and determiner of real estate? God is. And God will determine the boundaries of people. And God will furthermore eliminate every unbeliever from the planet. That's what is so irritating about this land promise. It is a declaration of holy war. Either you bow, and we, all of us, either we bow our knee to Jesus Christ or we're going to get kicked off the property. Very simple. That's terribly offensive, obviously. And we have the fact that only through Abraham will we have the seed and finally culminating in the seed, the Savior. Not going to come through any other person except the line through Abraham. And then we have, of course, the worldwide blessing. But all of this depicts God in his sovereignty. So now let's go back to God and put him by that circle. So now we have God who is sovereign and means that, therefore, in his sovereignty, he can shape history any way he pleases. And not only has he shaped history, but he has revealed the beginnings of the outline of how he's moving. Down through the centuries, he is moving human history in a certain direction. So there is his sovereignty. 
God is omniscient. And therefore, he has a perfect plan that has all the details and he takes pieces of this plan and he reveals them in the Abrahamic covenant. Why does he reveal pieces of his plan in the Abrahamic covenant? What do we say with the purpose of a covenant or contract was? You form a covenant or contract when you want to measure behavior. So you establish written terms of expectations embedded in the contract. You let life unroll. And then you see down here whether or not the behavior fits the terms of the contract. Now, in the Abrahamic covenant, who's doing the promising, man or God? God is. So, therefore, the Abrahamic covenant is a measure of whose behavior? God's behavior. And so, it's a saying that God is bound to certain things. God, in His love, has said, I am going to start something new inside a sinful world. And when you have love confronting evil, and, and you also have the attribute of holiness, these two together, when they confront evil, come out with grace. Because God didn't have to do it. So, grace is the outworking. So, now we have a sovereign, gracious work of God in this Abrahamic covenant. And he is saying, I am going to do certain things and I'm going to announce beforehand I've done them so you can track history and see where my footprints are. And that becomes a source of our trust in God. And that's why we have to have an inerrant scripture. If we don't have an inerrant scripture, we have no yardstick to measure his footprints. Okay, now we come to the Sinaitic Covenant, or that bottom area of circle of life. Now, in that area, if you can visualize a light shining down in darkness, and this is the, the Sinaitic Covenant, or the Covenant of Moses, this covenant is filled with do's and don'ts. Okay? Do's and don'ts. It's very cerebral. It's very content-filled. There's no doubt about what God wants. There's mystery in the Abrahamic covenant, isn't there? Because he hasn't really told us everything he's doing. But the Mosaic covenant is quite clear-cut. Yes, no, do this, don't do that. So that's the imperatives. And this is where we have law. Up here is where we have grace. So we want to now move on we covered those two. We want to move on. We, we buy the aim of sanctification. We did now to page 90 and 91 to the means of sanctification. And we want to deal with these two terms, law and grace. Because we have tendencies, remember from this problem set we worked on? We have tendencies to go between legalism and licentiousness. And if we go to legalism, we distort grace and law one way. If we come over here to licentiousness, we distort law and grace another way. And both of these are distorting law and grace. So what we want to do, obviously, is to come back to this and say, okay, now how can we operate so we, we are clear on this point? We come back to the law. Now, let, let's look first at law. It's the easiest of the two. The picture you can have in your mind of law is the do's and don'ts of Mosaic law. 
Okay? Easy picture. Ten Commandments. Written in stone. So we have a law. Is there any question about what the law says? No question about what the law says. It's quite clear. What happens when we distort the law? How is the law distorted? Well, what do we say when the law is, is done away with? When the law is minimized? The Greek word for law is nomos. And anti is against. And that's from which we get the word antinomian. Against the law. Now, what is antinomianism? It's licentiousness. And what antinomianism tries to do is destroy the law with grace. It tries to say that the law goes away because of grace. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. Forget about the words and go back to these two law codes. Does the Mosaic law, keep it to the Old Testament. We get into the New Testament another time, but... Does the Old Testament do's and don'ts addressed to the nation Israel go away because God made a promise to Abraham? Which came first? Promise to Abraham. So which is the foundation of that? Grace is the foundation of the law, isn't it? The, when God spoke to, on Mount Sinai and he revealed the law code, what was his first words out of his mouth? I am the Lord God who did what? I brought you out of Egypt. Then he says, now I want you to do this, 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 and not that, not that, that. So, the deal is that grace is the underlying foundation of the law. The law does not stand in, against grace. The law is supported by grace. If you think in these two covenants, you get it, it clicks with you, finally, because the Abrahamic covenant controls this. This is administered as a means to the goal that this promises. The law is a training device. It's a pedagogical revelation of what God's will is. It's to give us a, um, a challenge to believe or disbelieve. Now, if you look on page 91, middle paragraph, I try to summarize this thought. Elimination of all law in this sense is antinomianism. Antinomianism supports licentiousness in all its forms. It can manifest itself. Now, there are various versions of this, so, so watch what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you that this tendency is very widespread, and it crops up in unusual areas. So let's see if we can kind of watch this. It can manifest itself in a false mysticism and religious emotionalism, where something more than God's own inerrant word is insisted upon. Now, does that sound familiar? Of course it does. Now, it's not to say, obviously, it's the relationship with the Lord that counts and He's the God of Scripture. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea that when God spoke to Israel and He outlined these do's and don'ts, which were His... He's defining a relationship. Remember I said father-son relationship? He's defining a relationship and He's outlining what He wants. Now, if somebody's sitting down there, some Israelite, and says, well, that's not real relationship with God. I've got to go beyond that. What's he saying? Let me go beyond that. How do you go beyond that when you go to God on mountain, mountain and that's what he tells you he wants you to do? How do you go beyond that? So that's what I'm talking about. It's not wrong to have 
emotions and feelings, but they've got to be ruled by revelation. That's the point. They have to be in subjection to the revealed will of God. Okay? That's all we're saying. We're not saying this particular emotion is wrong or that particular emotion. We're just saying a general principle that you'll tend to find antinomianism in religious areas in this area. But the religious areas is not the only place. Elimination of law creates a false interpretation of grace. See, one error always begets another one. If you eliminate law and talk endlessly about grace, what content does grace have? Grace becomes an eternal laxity in the holiness of God. That's what happens. It also, now look at this, this is where other areas where antinomianism crops up. It also manifests itself intellectually in forms of irrationalism, undisciplined speculation and existential depression. Those of you who read in literature seriously in the 20th century are aware that the theme of existentialism, the fact there's no standards, everything is relative, it's just do, do whatever strikes you this moment. We are in a profoundly antinomian century. Profoundly antinomian century. Nobody wants to be bound by the scriptures. But listen to your talk show. I mean, some poor Christian on the talk show says something, everybody pounces on him or her. Why? Because there's a hatred a hatred for law that is biblically based law. Funny, they always substitute another law, though. You know, my mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby, so I have the right to do whatever I want to because I can't help it. So antinomianism shows up intellectually. Furthermore, antinomianism underlies the frantic search for happiness seen in drugs, sex, and musically induced ecstasy. The frantic search for happiness is a frantic search for happiness because they're not happy, and they're not happy because they're not in a relationship with God. The cup can't spill on the table until the cup is full. So, when men aren't happy, it's like a vacuum is created, and they suck in everything that's around them in order to fill the vacuum that only God can fill. And hence, therefore, we go into these areas. Other areas. Okay. Now, the answer, of course, is that we are to be taught. Now, let's turn in our Bibles just to cover that Second Timothy verse, because there's some neat things in there about the role of Scripture. We're talking about the means of sanctification. And Scripture plays a vital role. And we have the preposterous notion that we can translate the Scriptures differently than the, down through the century. Now we're going to have a gender-neutral translation of the NIV. What a sick thought. You know what the gender-neutral translation of the NIV really ultimately is doing? It's a very dangerous, very dangerous, and it's promoted by the largest evangelical church in the United States. This isn't a liberal thing that's going on. It's our evangelical brethren that are cranking this one out. What it amounts to is that when I see passages in Scripture that give me grief in my day, in my moment of history, then the way, the sneaky way I can grease my way around it is to palm it off as cultural. So therefore, we can take all the gender-specific vocabulary out of the Scripture and say, that's all cultural. Well, if you can do that, guess what I can do? You want to take play games with gender vocabulary? Let's go through Scripture and pick out some more vocabulary and play the same little number. All talk about morality. 
in society is just a cultural accretion. What are you going to do about that? Stop the game? You can't stop the game. You started it. There's nobody here to blow the whistle to stop the game because I'm going to keep playing it. You gave me a wonderful option to handle. I can get rid of any scripture I want to. All I have to do is declare it culturally relative. Now, let's see what a Pandora's box you opened, see. But no, they don't want to do that. For example, if you're going to say that gender-specific passages are culturally um, relative, then that gives me an idea that as a man, I can go out and mistreat all women. Because the idea that men should respect women is just a cultural accretion. I mean, you know, that's the way they, they treated women nicely back then. And they honored them. They were mothers and they were guardians and they were looked upon as saviors. And so now I don't have to do that because that's culturally relative. So now let me see what you're going to say to that one. So don't start the game unless you want to play it all the way to the fourth quarter. And that's what's happening right now. We've got a bunch of people inside our own evangelical camp to suddenly want to play the new game. And these poor guys don't realize that once they open the door and blow the whistle on this thing, they just started a really neat, neat story. And they're going to be taken to the, to the cleaners on this one. Okay, let's look at 2 Timothy 3.16. Look at what Scripture is profitable for. Scripture is the do's and don'ts. Now, it's more than that. Yes, it reveals the Abraham covenant. But right now, we're just looking at the role of Scripture in the sense of the Mosaic law code. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for what? For teaching. What else? Not just for teaching, but for reproof. There's a function of sanctification. That's how the law, it reproves us. It corrects us. And it trains us in righteousness. So does law have a role in sanctification? Sure it does. All right, let's go back now to the top circle and the Abrahamic covenant on page 92. God. He could have. Didn't have to say, Adam, where are you? God, that afternoon after they ate, did not have to take his usual stroll in the garden. He could have said, huh, well... Screw them. Suppose he had done that one. Huh? So, the fact that God reached out and maintained and continued to open up communication is grace. So, is grace necessary? You bet. Because if grace isn't there, we're not even on speaking terms. We've got to maintain the speaking term. We've got to maintain the link. And you remember, we already, on top of page 92, we talked about some of the things we've seen, how at Mount Sinai, he was giving the law, what was happening down below, party time. And God still dealt with these people. Moses still made intercession for them to sustain them. So grace sustains. Now, if you look at the middle paragraph of page 92... Elimination of grace is the opposite pagan tendency. See, people like to eliminate grace too. Remember we went back to this problem set again. Remember we said the aggressive person will tend toward works. And when we go through works, whose works are they? Our works. And if it's going to be our works, what value have we put on our works? High value or low value? High value. So now we're attributing righteousness to our works. 
Now, if we, if we value our works on a scale like this, what are we, in essence, really saying about our capabilities ethically? That we fallen creatures, independently of grace, can produce righteousness. Now, what kind of an arrogant situation is this? So, middle paragraph. Elimination of grace is the opposite pagan tendency. To assert that God's grace is no longer needed for us to meet his righteousness is to assert that his righteousness is within man's reach. And by the way, if his righteousness is within our reach, what don't we need that Christ did for us? Communion. He died on the cross. That's not necessary, is it? If we really can be righteous, I mean, isn't that a waste? So haven't we really wasted the whole cross of Christ here? You see where these errors lead? You, t you start down the primrose path and you, you, know, you walk 500 feet and you're off in a cliff someplace. These, these ideas have consequences. So, to assert that God's grace is no longer needed is to, to meet His righteousness, to assert that His righteousness is within our reach. Elimination of grace creates a false interpretation of law where law is seen as a legitimate product of finite human intellect, defining good and evil like a god. Man now becomes the center of all works, all order, and all attention. The battle is on to attain security, knocking down Jericho's walls and stopping the sun, as it were, independently of the Creator. Legalism destroys dependency upon God by destroying all gratitude for what He needs to do for us. And that is one of the... You might circle that, underline it, Asterisks it because one of the fatal flaws of this particular error is if we eliminate God's grace, we eliminate the necessity to rely upon Him. And when we eliminate the necessity to rely upon Him, we eliminate what in our Christian life? Thanksgiving. And what is the barometer of how well we're doing in our Christian life? how much in our heart we're thankful. That's a good barometer. If we're thankful for what He has done, we probably are okay in the area of grace. And when we're drifting and we forget to give thanks, we're getting wobbly in our practice of understanding His grace. Okay. Further in that paragraph, gone then is the primary motivation in living a faithful life before God. You see, that's why, if, remember we said, what happens on, the, on a secular pagan basis to the guy that's aggressive in his works? What finally happens? Runs out of gas. Gets tired. Doesn't work anymore. Got to have relief from all the pressure. Well, who, then he defines relief by going over to this side. See? God's making his comments. All right, furthermore, middle paragraph. It manifests itself in self help techniques and the frantic search for self esteem. My, my, how much we've heard about that. You know, one of the creatures that had the highest self-esteem, you can read it, it's in Isaiah 14. Perfect self-esteem. Just read the passage and find out who said it. Intellectually, it shows up in various forms of rationalism. 
in the philosophical and socio-political spheres that seek to build a utopian civilization through man's efforts alone. So there you have it. Those are the two bases. And so why, what do we say then, going back to this, we have our position, we owe everything in our position. He has saved us, He has justified us, He is giving us all kinds of things through the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're all grace. And they did not come to us because we were so goody-goody people down here and we did everything He told us to do. Matter of fact, He kept us, cut us out of the whole picture because Jesus Christ did it. And He didn't ask for our help. And He did it far before we came along. It was all planned from eternity. It's just like the Exodus. Jews were bellyaching and crying about the, Egypt was so terrible. And then they got saved from Egypt and then they were fussing because of the desert was so bad. But it was God's motion, God's plan, because back before then, He promised that He was going to do these three things in history to save the human race. And so all of this follows that. So we dealt with the, the, the position. We dealt with the area of experience, of going, uh, obeying God, submitting to Him. And then we, we dealt with the, law, the grace issue here and the law. Both of the grace and the law mirror those two relationships. Grace tends to show an emphasis on the Abrahamic covenant, God's sovereign grace. And then down below in the Mosaic law, what he tells us to do and he establishes authority. Uh, another point about this balance is if you don't have law, you don't have authority. If this isn't here, remember, what is the image of God at Mount Sinai when he speaks law? It's a king. And he's establishing his reign. He's establishing his authority. And his authority is embedded in the law. And so in an antinomian age, guess what goes away? Respect. Isn't that true? My wife and I were in a supermarket the other day and a little kid walked across the path somewhere where we were, forgot where it was, and he actually said, excuse me. I just about, gosh, where did that kid come from? Where's his parents? He actually said, excuse me. Holy mackerel. Revival started. Okay, let's, let's go to one more, one more thing here on page 92. And this is just a quick... Uh, another tool for thinking in terms of sanctification. I want to go through it uh, quickly and then next week we'll deal with the enemies of some And that is the dimensions of sanctification. If you look at the graph on page 92, I want to just show something that might help um, distinguish some concepts of sanctification that get confused. Remember we distinguish between position and, and experience. We also want to distinguish between growth and at any given moment, we're obeying or disobeying what we know of God. Uh, I don't know what term to coin, so I just kind of coin these terms. One is kind of the existentially present moment. That means at this time, what am I doing? Am I in rebellion against God or am I submitting to God? Am I trusting Him or am I not trusting Him? So we usually face at any given point sort of a, a plus or a minus. But if you map this out as God works in our lives, hopefully we see a growth curve. So this process takes time. There's a lot of time involved here because there's got to be this decision, this decision, this decision, this decision. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions go into growth. And it takes time. And the New Testament points this out when it says, don't promote a novice to a church office. 
Now, is that saying that novices disobey God? Surely not. I mean, if someone can trust the Lord in five minutes, the next five minutes, be a wonderfully in fellowship and obeying. So it's not implying anything about this person's disobeying. It's simply saying they've got a long time with God in a relationship to grow in it. So this factor of growth also needs to be distinguished from the factor which we'll call just the obedience-disobedience. And that, that can afflict you at any point along the curve. Peter's a good example of that in the New Testament. I mean, you're up to the last moments before the cross. He's having problems. And we identify with that. I mean, how long he's been with the Lord? As long or longer than any of the other disciples. Has he grown? Yes, he's grown. Does he still have sin problems? Sure he has. So, the, the, the balance what we're trying to devise here is that growth doesn't immunize us against this. And this, one or two one-shot great decisions down here doesn't promote growth either. Growth takes a long process of time. Okay, so we've covered these areas of sanctification. And what I want to do now is um, we'll just stop at this point because, I, as I say, I want to deal a lot of time with the enemies of sanctification and then have a review the last night. And um, we'll try to work from there on, on this. Um, we, if you'll notice on page 94, if you want to have your eyebrows raised, you might want to look at some of those psalms that I list. Those are so-called imprecatory psalms. And uh, they are kind of fall in the same category as those holy war passages in the Old Testament. I just want to show you that so you're exposed to these kinds of passages here in a safe environment uh, instead of out in a room or discussion somewhere where some non-Christian who's read these things suddenly puts them in front of your face and you've never seen them before. So we want to take this opportunity to go through these things and discuss them and say, yes, they are in the Scriptures and why are they in the Scriptures? Um, We'll have some question and answer time after class. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. And we pray that as we have so quickly and um, hastily gone over these areas in, in the Old Testament history, and their implications for us living, that you would uh, cause us to draw near to these scriptures and go back and examine them, chew on them, digest them, think about them, and uh, pray them. We ask that you would be with us, Father, as we seek to reflect the character of Christ into our own generation, into our own moment of history. We ask this in his name. Amen. regarding the NIV and how does this get started? Well, it gets started in the same way that every every large seminary and Christian training school has usually gone down the tubes within 50 years. Um, 
in a, by going down the tubes, I don't mean out to the point of denying God exists, but getting off in a, all kinds of liberalism and we can't really be sure the scriptures are true and valid. I mean, one uh, the example that comes to mind, and, and you know, it's kind of uh, it's a hot topic, but Wheaton College is a good example. Wheaton College looked upon today in America. I have some friends I went to seminary with, think it's the greatest thing. Billy Graham graduated from there. But if you study church history, Wheaton College was started by two men who financed. They were two wealthy men. One, one particular, Ar- Armading, I think he was. Either he financed it or he was in a circle of businessmen who financed the publication in 1917 of a group of tracts called The Fundamentals of Our Faith. It's those tracts that were issued back in World War I time that's the word from which we get the word fundamentalist. And those men had to stand up in their day against the liberalism and define five fundamentals. You know, you hear the word fundamentalist today and the image comes to mind because we've listened to the media of some Elmer Gantry weird, weird, weird guy. But fundamentalists originally were, I believe, that in the deity of Jesus Christ, I believe in the virgin birth, uh, believe in the substitutionary atonement and uh, the two other doctrines that they, they said that if you don't believe these, you're not a Christian. And uh, that was terribly offensive. And all during the 20s and 30s, oh, it was terrible. And you had these people looked upon as the fundamentalists that were the, they wouldn't go along with everybody else and they were these religious nuts and so forth. And they formed these, formed Wheat and they formed these other colleges. And today you can go on that campus and uh, have some one professor there that's uh, an apologist for gay, the gay homosexual lobby. Um, and, and this just happens. I don't know one school that's remained faithful more than 50 to 70 years. And it's just because men's depraved. And, it's, and that's why the Christian, evangelical Christians in this country got burned real bad at the beginning of this century. And whenever I hear people saying about, oh, well, gee, how come you, you fundamentalists always you have all these little storefront churches and you don't have the great churches and this and that. Who built the great churches, pal? Whose money built? That was a faithful people who gave money to those things. And they were taken over in the 20s and 30s and 40s by the liberals. The liberals took over every major school. It starts back in the early days of this country. Harvard University was trained for one purpose. Right there, you can take you to the campus of Harvard University and show it to you right there in the building. It was Harvard School was for men to learn to preach the Word of God. Now, come on, what's happened to Harvard? So it's the same process, Vinny. It, it started at Harvard. Yale was formed against Harvard because Harvard was too liberal. So a bunch of guys went down to Connecticut and set up Yale. And where's Yale? Princeton. So the bulwark in the 19th century of all serious Christian conservative scholarship came out of Princeton. Princeton Seminary. And then they got kind of infiltrated. And I think the process is, I've thought about this because I see it in some evangelical seminaries now. I think the process is that young guys get on the faculty. They get their doctorate. And they're not pastors. They're not really out there ministering the Word of God in a practical way. And the next thing that happens is they want intellectual respectability. Now, if you think about it, where do you get intellectual respectability? You don't get it with people taking pot shots at you because you're a fundy. You get it by joining scholarly organizations. 
you get it by going to meetings where everybody's there and this and that, and you can you know appear to be educated and blah blah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying though that there's a process that starts here that seeps in and then it, it becomes the thing to do. In this case, more directly to your question, the NIV revision was started in the largest evangelical church in this country, Willow, what is it, Willow Creek Community Church near Chicago. And uh, there's a full-time guy on the staff there, PhD they hired, and uh, he's dreaming this thing up. Well, further investigation shows that you can't be an office holder, deacon, or anything else in that church starting two or three years ago if you don't believe in an all-inclusive, gender-neutral doctrine. So, it's interesting. Um, you can let gay Christians, uh, and that's uh, it's all right, as long as the Christian's dealing with his homosexuality. I'm not knocking that. But I'm just saying that everybody else is welcome in that church, except anyone holds to traditional division of gender issues in the church polity. And you're not welcome there, and you will not be accepted for membership. So, once you have that set in motion, what does it do to your criticisms? You don't have any criticism on the inside because you filtered them all out. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I went to Dallas Seminary, and I, guys go to Dallas Seminary. To, one fellow has his son going there now, and his son was sitting there in a class, and they're going through Greek. And the whole reason for Dallas Seminary existing was because Lewis Berry Chaper and C.I. Schofield were teaching the Bible, and they felt frustrated because they didn't know the Greek and the Hebrew. So Chafer vowed that he was not going to, his boys that he was trying to nurture were, were not going to be handicapped like he was. So he started Dal Seminary to teach theology, Greek, and Hebrew. And that, for years, that's all he taught. And then we have to add Christian education. We have to add this. We have to add all these other things. And, and then the languages start going down. Well, if you study languages, you know that you never get proficient in a language unless you have three or four years, minimum. Because what happens is it's so difficult that if you don't get up to the plateau, you sink right back down. So they start snipping off the language requirements. Oh, we've got too many other things we're doing here. And once you reduce the language requirement, you reduce the facility. And you might as well just not take the language because you never get facility enough to use them. And um, so in that situation, there was a class on New Testament exegesis or something, and a guy was sitting there. And again, this is not to not women, okay? But it's just, it's this feminist doctrine. So, they were discussing some thing in the Greek text, and this girl always said, I don't see what this has to do. Why are we discussing this? It has nothing to do with women's issues in this class. Excuse me, hon? This is the New Testament. You know who wrote that? So, it's all over. And it's just permeating everything. And it's just, and it's slick. It's so slick, so that you can't oppose it without looking like a real nerd. Uh, it always seems like the other side is very skilled at making us, biblical-centered people, look like we're the world's idiots. I mean, they, they come off like that. It's very rare that you can, you can engineer it so that that doesn't happen. But you watch. NIV is the first one to go, and I'll bet you ten years down the road there'll be a whole bunch of translations doing the same thing. But there are people who are opposing it. I mean, that's how I heard about it. 
Liberty Journal from Jerry Falwell's had the, the dean of students at Louisville Seminary that teaches the Southern Baptist Convention, which amazed me, came out and he says, I went over to Willow Creek Church and I, sat, I, I went there for three weeks, went through all the ministries, talked to them, I critiqued them, gave the guys my critique so they could comment to make sure I wasn't misrepresenting them in any way. And they said, no, this is true. So he wrote it. And that's how I know about it. So that happens. And it's, it's just, it's a fundamental problem. Remember last year we were talking about creationism? It's the same thing there. We have ma- uh, people like uh, uh, Dobson. I mean, I have a high respect for Dobson. But he gets this guy that I mentioned in the footnotes last year. Um, Hugh Ross gets on Dobson and starts promoting old earth views. And the fact that, well, we can kind of accept the ends and ends of years because Genesis really doesn't tell us. So I'm, excuse me, but what does Genesis 1 say? Um, but that's, that's got to be culturally interpreted. So it's the same thing that we kind of culturally interpret away Genesis 1 and 2 and then we culturally interpret away the, the polity of the church and this and that. And it just goes from one thing to the next. But it's, it's something that's just you have to be vigilant. Yeah, well, it, it's an ignorance. Um, Colson and um, Dobson are not men who have really studied the issue. Uh, they're very powerful. Um, they're great guys. I mean, they, I mean, they've done some tremendous things for us. I mean, they're shields for us against the system. But they personally can't be experts in every area. And they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to this area of apologetics. I mean, I've studied all my life. I've studied for 30 or 40 years. And I think I know something about it. And the arguments that these guys are bringing up, they were tried in 1850 and failed. And the reason you have what we call strict creationism arose because in our own time, guys involved in science, not at Christian schools, in secular schools, but they were Christians in secular schools, said, we can't, we can't survive. You don't provide us the tools. Something's wrong here. And what we think is wrong is all of science, all of historical science is fundamentally flawed. And well, that's obviously not too welcome. But that's their position. And it's, it, it's not because they, they sat in the back room and they said, gee, we've got nothing to do, and so let's think up something to be controversial. I mean, these, these guys, some of them lost their doctorates, they lost their jobs. It hasn't been easy. But it's because they've come to this conviction, because they've looked at the issues. And this is what's happening. I mean, there's some wonderful spokesmen for the other side, women that have stood up and argued this. Because it's not a demeaning of the woman. That's the problem. The problem is that the gender specific, uh, specificity of the scriptures comes out of Genesis 2. Now think about it for a minute. What do you do with Genesis 2? M-A-N is not gender. When it says man was created, it's male and female, he created them. But anytime you see man now, that's a gender reference. But if you read the scriptures, M-A-N doesn't refer to gender. It refer, it's just a synonym for the whole human race, including men and women. But, and you get that by the fact that in Genesis 2, you have a man, and he's bifurcated. What happened when Eve came out of Adam? Now you have the rise of the male and the female. But it came originally out of man. 
And it's man, excuse me, but it doesn't say woman. It says man. And the woman, that word means I came from the man. And it's, it's a reference, not of dependency, it's a reference to the history of how women were created in Genesis 2. So if they're going to argue it's cultural, you think about it, every passage in the New Testament that I can think of except one that deals with um, the male-female difference refers to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if it's cultural, why does it do that? Because it's referring to the way men and women were made. We were made differently. They're arguing the culture of the people who wrote and carried on Genesis 2. They will say they are, but really they're not, because they're saying that the Old Testament is patriarchal. It was a Jewish society controlled and run by men. Now, that really isn't true, because if you look at key... I mean, how can you argue that the men were wholly in charge of things? You look at Ruth. Now, wh- why is the book of Ruth there? Because, and you get the whole story of Naomi and Ruth. Who put that in there? The Holy Spirit put it in there. What was going on then? It was a proof that here was some Canaanite women who came out of the cursed countries who trusted the Lord, and God blessed them. To whom did the angel of Jehovah first show up in the Old Testament? To a man or to a woman? Hagar. A woman. When they say about arranged marriages, yes, parents had a role in arranging marriages of their children. But look at the story in Judges of Samson. Samson goes to his mother and dad and says, I want that girl over there. You get her for me. Now, he's, he's rude, insolent, slob. But the point is that that text shows you that, yeah, the parents arranged marriages, but the kids had a lot to do with it. And that's what that's saying. So, everybody, they try to read the Old Testament like it's some sort of anti-anti thing that's the worst possible thing they can imagine. And they're, they're not entering into the spirit of the text. That's not what the text is saying. Who was it that ultimately brought Christ into the world, man or woman? So, obviously, the scriptures are not saying demeaning women. They don't. They, they can't. It's good that you bring that up, George. They can't really... Inerrancy is at the heart of this. What they do is they, they get very greasy. Because if you say that you're denying... Oh, no, we're not denying inerrancy. We believe in the Scriptures. Oh, yeah, we believe God's Word. And we just don't believe your interpretation of God's Word. So, see, they, they back off claiming that we are misinterpreting it. They've got the true interpretation. But obviously, you can it, a piece of literature cannot be interpreted arbitrarily. <clears throat> there are objective standards and rules for interpreting literature. Now we all intuitively know that, or we wouldn't write letters. Let I me mean, think about it for a minute. Why do you write a letter to somebody? 
Do you really, when you write a letter, expect that there are 85 ways to take the letter? If you really believed that literature was arbitrary, you would never write. But we all write. Because we all intuitively know that we can send a message through written means. I mean, why would you have to send email? It's the same thing. It's by a computer, but it's still, you know. So it's, it's just it's, it's playing games with words is what's happening. And what ultimately happens is you move inerrancy. Inerrancy never disappears, by the way. Inerrancy is relocated. It's relocated from the scriptures to man. Now man becomes inerrant. He becomes a possessor of the judgment. He makes a judgment call. And what was the what was the temptation? In the day that you eat thereof, you shall know you shall be as God and what does it say? Knowing good and evil. Well, knowing good and evil is an idiom, for you'll have total knowledge. You'll be your own gods. You can determine. You can judge. You're the final authority to determine good and evil. So it's the, it's the voice of the one who was speaking back in Genesis three. So it's a it's a battle. It goes on and on. But you just we have to be careful of it, and we just have to. There's no sense getting your liver in a quiver about every little detail because you'd be high blood pressure all the time. But what you just have to do is just sit back and look and see and smell which way the wind's blowing. And you stay away from that crowd and don't support them. And that's just something that you just have to make a break. They're nice people. Hey, great. But I'm not going to support that. Sorry. Can't do it by faith. And that's basically how you have to handle it. Yes, Debbie? Uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, to get back to the subject of the evening. <laughs> That's right. If you have your That, that has come about, and I addressed that, and I'm sorry, I didn't, that's a good question you brought up, so let me turn, if you have your notes here tonight, let me show you where I addressed that, because I, I deal with it in here. Um, if you go to bottom of page 90, the last sentence on page 90, just before I introduce that, and then I want to show you some other ones. That last sentence on page 90 is sometimes it is said that in the age of Israel men were sanctified by law and in the church age men are sanctified by grace. And I gave you a footnote on that. Footnote 10. And it's a very interesting footnote. So if you look at the notes Carol handed out tonight on footnote number 10 you'll see that I address a dispensational theologian par excellence. guy that taught me theology. Dr. Ryrie. And he's written an excellent book on dispensationalism where he deals with this law-grace issue and points out, yes, there is a difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And yes, it does involve law and grace. But on page 91, um, the second full paragraph is where I try to 
answer that, Debbie. Um, the word law can refer generally to all revelation and all covenants taken together. It can refer to the first five books of the Bible or it can refer to the Sinaitic Covenant in particular. It's three names, at least three meanings of the LAW that you can find in the scriptures. Because uh, you can find the first five books are called law because the Jewish title for the Old Testament is the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So that means Genesis is included. Um, law, as it, is re as it is talked about in Romans and Galatians, and I quote that there, that, let me read that sentence, it is when law refers to the Sinaitic covenant in certain New Testament passages that it is contrasted with grace. Because both of those, remember, Galatians in particular is written to a heavy Jewish situation. That is a special usage I'll discuss later. For now, I mean by law, revelation in general. So, I... I don't, don't want you guys to get confused. Debbie's brought up an interesting point here. Very important. In the New Testament, there are specific paths. We are not under the law. So how can you say what we're saying tonight? Because in those passages, the law is talking about the Mosaic Law Code. We're not under that. Why aren't we? Because the law was mediated through the Levitical priesthood. And the, law, and the New Testament is mediated through Christ. We are under a new covenant. The new covenant in Christ is replaced. That has to be, because what else don't we do that's prescribed in the Old Testament law code? Sacrifices. We don't uh, go through a lot, a lot of the processes that are there, the tabernacle. We don't have any of that stuff. And so, now, the best way Ryrie, uh, Dr. Ryrie had a neat illustration of this. He said, the way to think this through is imagine two presidents in the United States, Okay. You have one administration and you have another administration. Two different, distinct administrations. Now, one administration has certain policies. Those policies are changed when you come to the second administration. So you have two distinguished administrations with two distinct policies. You have a policy of God toward the nation Israel in the Sinaitic Code. And you have a policy of God toward the church in the New Testament. And those are two very distinct policies. And that's the difference in the dispensational distinction between Israel and the church. It's very important. That's why I didn't get into the details of the law because I didn't want to get into so much detail of the law that we were thinking we're going to live under that system. All I've done here in the Old Testament is I've touched on these great events so that you can use these to conceptualize. Under the New Testament, do we have law in the New Testament, by the way? Yes, we do. It's called the law of Christ. And what does it consist of? Here's an exercise that a person did once when we were in Texas and it took her three or four weeks to do this. She went through the New Testament and underlined every, and listed on a piece of paper every single imperative, starting with Romans, going all the way through Jude. So when every single do, don't, do, don't, do, don't, do, don't. And then she listed them all out and categorized them. And then she went and took a sample out of the Old Testament. Do, don't, do, don't, do, don't. She categorized them. And then you put the two together and you see there's a very big distinction. What do you think one of the big distinctions is beside worship? What does a lot have to say in the Old Testament too that you never hear it said in the New Testament? Dietary? Where's the dietary codes in the New Testament? None. Um, 
there are certain principles. Now, we're not saying the dietary codes are bad. We're just saying that God doesn't require that in the New Testament. Why doesn't he? Because the gospel is going to go to all nations. And the dietary code, some of it apparently, was to make Israel live in a certain way to mirror Christ. Um, there, there are all kinds of laws in the Old Testament law code dealing with a king. Anything dealing with a king other than pray for him in the New Testament? See, the two are distinct. So, very good point. Grace and law, when they mean these two administrations. Grace is a label for the New Testament administration. And law is a label for the Old Testament administration. And the reason why it took that label is because Paul was a Pharisee. And he wanted to distinguish this whole edifice of the Mishnah. Remember I brought the Mishnah in one night and read you about all, all the machinations of interpreting the law and how to fry an egg on the Sabbath day without violating the Sabbath law and all the rest of the hoopla. I mean, they, there was lawyers by the thousands involved in the law. What Paul just said, you guys missed the whole point. Forget it. And so he, he says, grace. But you know Paul doesn't isn't saying that there's not such a thing as sin in the New Testament. And you know that he's not saying, well, you can do what you want to. Because if he said that, why would he write all the do's and don'ts in the New Testament? So you have to distinguish those meaning to the word law. If you just, for tonight and for the Old Testament, we're going to sharpen this up as we move toward the New Testament. But for now, if you just think, if law bothers you, if those two labels bother you, just think of law as the revealed will of God. And think of grace as his enablement. And if you want to wash out the words law and grace, fine. But just think of what he wants me to do and what has he provided for me to do it. But there is content in the New Testament. Lots of content to do things. And this, this gender issue is one of them. It's a whole content about polity. How do you set up a local church? And that's, that has those ways. It's not just whoever we have, you do it or whatever we want. Are there any other questions? We're coming, running up to our time limit. Yeah. The, the question concerns what about Jews who believe in God but don't believe in Jesus? That's part of a larger question. What about anybody, Jew, even non-Jews, that believe strongly in God and don't believe in Jesus? I think the clearest way to answer that is that Christ said in no uncertain terms that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Christ. Is it possible for people who deny him to believe in him? I don't think so. However, is it possible that you have somebody, the Inca and the Aztecs, who responded to the revelation available to them, both in nature around them and also in what was left over from Genesis, who believed in a blood atonement, who believed that they had to be saved somehow, uh, it's hard for me to say, in that case, not having the explicit knowledge of the New Testament text, that they have disbelieved in Christ. 
I mean, that's a judgment called by God himself. And remember, the gospel, at one point, is an expanding circle and expanded out into the world. What happened two hours after the cross to people who were Old Testament saints that lived in Greece? I mean, were they, they saved? Sure they were. Because in the Old Testament, many people were saved and they didn't know anything about Jesus. But the difference is that now Jesus has come. And so we have all these texts that say, I came to you, O Israel, and you didn't recognize me. The failure to recognize Jesus as more than a mere prophet is a commentary not on Jesus. It's a commentary on me or anybody else who takes that position. Because what he's saying is, I'm a light.